Hello and welcome to Keyframes, a podcast about anime. I'm your host, Ben Halliburton. With me today is Just Duncan. Just little me. Hello. Yeah. Good man, Duncan. Showing up. Yes. Uh, we have uh, a full docket for the two people here today. Mm-hmm. We are first going to be talking about our discussion topic, which is cashing in when auteurs work on blatantly commercial shows. We're probably going to stretch that definition a bit um, to talk about the corporate demands of anime and the myth of auteurism in general. But we'll see where that heads. And then after the break, we're going to have a quick talk about the second half of Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex 2045 coming out. Is it still bad? Uh, has time softened Ben's brain to the point where he's just vaguely inter- in, in enjoying it now? Because at least it's not a rise. I think that's exactly my take from, from last time. So maybe I am carved in stone. Who knows? But first, Duncan, how did you come up with this topic? And what do you understand it as? This was partly inspired by you talking about um, freedom. Like how we went from... A director who made Akira, which is probably still the most iconic anime f- film you can find, to go and basically making a brave, brave words. But yes, go ahead. I, I, well, I, I will still say, like you, you ask someone to describe a good anime, I think Akira probably comes up. Yeah, you, you talking about him and and how like he's he's now making this glorified Nissin Noodle advert. This made me wonder, like. Anyone who's been even tangentially related to a, a fandom of a an art form or knows people who work in anything which is craft related will know to an extent that the idea of selling out to to compromise your artistic values for money is largely as mythical as the fine artists who care not for reward. It's 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 not something which exists. The, there's always some element of people wanting to work to survive and just and work to make art and even in something like fine art that's true and in something like anime which is a, as we've said many times before it's a collaborative endeavor finding one pure artist is a miracle finding a staff of pure artists who can work together with some sort of weird hive mind is downright impossible and so that's where production committees come in and the question starts becoming what are we giving up for what are we gaining and i think a lot of what we're going to talk about it's going to be skirting that idea like what compromises are people prepared to make and the different ways they've navigated them yeah i didn't i didn't want to tom chick this idea to to uh, <laughs> borrow a, a, an idiom from the late great quarter three movie podcast because i don't like to be the kind of guy who comes in and is like i reject the premises of this discussion <laughs> topic i always try to play fair at least how i understand but like anime is so corporate. Anime um, has always been the province of these these massive studios that have like split off into smaller studios that mm-hmm. eventually become massive, and there's kind of a life cycle there. It's hard for me to imagine a anime that is not captured in some way by corporate processes, short of like a Kickstarter, like a like Kickheart, which I never saw, so I'm part of the problem. But yeah, like there's always going to be this consortium of businesses funding it. There is always going to be market considerations, especially in the current market where 90% of anime are advertisements for manga um, Mm, that will lose money and never get a second season, um, which is fine. That's how they play the game. And it allows us to get absolutely bizarre anime like your boy Kong Ming and stuff. Uh, (sighs) Yeah. Which is, uh, I mean, it's working. If they... 
if the whole season of Kong Ming is going to be uh, just them doing the 10,000 or the 100,000 like challenge, they will get me to watch the, the to read the manga to find out what happens next. But yeah, it's the calculus of why anime are made, how they are broadcast, even who works in them is so caught up in corporate processes that I personally think it's a little bit silly to be talking about auteurs and selling out. But that said, uh, there is, of course, a continuum that goes from there is probably someone with uh, artistic principles working mm-hmm. on this to uh, a certain magical index three. Uh, no offense to anybody working there. I also work a job I hate to keep body and soul together and I don't judge anybody. But there are there are obviously still things that are working within the corporate environment because they have something they want to achieve. Mm-hmm. And then there are ones they're working within the corporate environment because that's just, I don't know, the temperature of the water, the air they breathe, so I to think speak. One of the things which is obvious to me is that more than almost any industry, the people working in, in anime are aware of this. Like maybe Hollywood is, is the closest ex- example of a, another very self-aware um, collaborative industry, which is aware of the myths surrounding it. But there's definitely people out there who have really struggled with what happens to their work when it goes out there. And in turn, the way the works they love are also products like i think that that's the poster boy for, for this um is probably anno because <laughs> dear god like the man starts out so clearly embracing many of the otaku virtues like he he absolutely loves and fetishizes shows Part of that is he fetishizes the craft of of things like um, Blue Blazes. If, if watching that and and seeing how someone close to him, him captures the way he he will look at something and just become enraptured with with how it's made, is yeah. a wonderful thing. And and we should really do Blue Blazes at some point, even though it technically isn't. We should. Me. Um, but yeah, no, but it would, it's it's a perfect tween topic, and I would ha- be happy to rewatch it because there's probably more jokes I would get too. Also, <laughs> but, I know a lot more of the manga artists that they are making fun mm, of in Blue Blazes. So he makes Eva, which obviously both embraces and re- then thoroughly rejects many of the the tropes and of uh, the very virtues he Anno so hugs to his chest early, earlier in his career and it hits especially with how we see him finally dealing with that as an adult when all these decades later we get to three three plus one and how he finally ends up basically separating the idea of a object which can be commercialized and can be representative of all these things and of individuals and personalities and how he can like look at his own work and go okay this is is simultaneously a product and also a, a expression of someone's feelings and and how he can like kind of separate the, the two this the separation of Eva and uh, Shinji basically of the end of Eva when well spoil spoilers for Eva three point one etc etc um the end of of that where uh, Shinji and uh Asuka Misato Rei no, Mari Mari when Shinji and Mari oh are, you forgot um, Mari's name that's not that's no <laughs> that's no that's not damning for you at all <laughs> when 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 at the end of Eva three plus one we see Shinji and, and Mari running out of the station that's very much 
Anno separating himself from Eva, it, just very literally, and and especially since, since it then cuts to a, a real city rather than the drawn one. And I think it's it's a hard thing to be an anime author. I don't think it's a, a rewarding life. I think it, it kind of ruins men. Like it, it certainly broke Anno. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you talk about Anno's development as a director, um, I would never call at, at any point Anno a sellout. I think that his Repeated returns to Evangelion um, are about discomfort with its level of cultural omnipresence and dominance, and that, like, it basically ruined the giant robot genre for, like, two decades as people tried to, like, like, oh, people want dark gritty. It's like what Attack of Titan did, but Attack of Titan was purposely trying to be kind of trashy, and I think Evangelion was genuinely like, y'all should stop watching so much anime. But no, nonetheless, like, he works on Gunbuster. Um, it is just this really big distillation of all the tropes. You can t- tell this is someone who has a huge passion for animation, for mechanical design, um, has come up eating, sleeping, and, and breathing mm, yeah. this, uh, this like mecha fandom. And then he eventually goes on to make Nadia uh, after Miyazaki drops out because Miyazaki would never direct a TV show. How dare you? Uh, and he hates it. And he kind of, I think that... We do really see him experience the other side of anime production when we have Nadia and the Secret of Blue Water, especially when they when they increase the order um, from 26 episodes to 39. That's when he has his infamous breakdown mm. um, uh, that is caricatured to hell and back when people try to analyze like what mental state he had going into Evangelion. But there is like this idea that the corporate demands, the idea that you have a plan for a 26 episode show and you're not loving it, but you have a way to the end. And then the studio calls up and says, uh, this is doing great. Give us, give us 13 more episodes. And she just like have them get lost on an Island and in Africa for 13 episodes. And it, it does nothing but stall out. That's actually kind of what my argument was that I think that a lot of anime auteurs don't sell out from work to work, but they sell out with long running works as, as, as commercial pressures mount. There are plenty of examples of great shows getting a second season that no one wants and is actually done kind of poorly, like mm-hmm. uh, the One Punch Man second season or the Promised Neverland second season. Um, these that are just like, well, the algorithm said we need more. Oh, you, you disagree? No, I, I think I think those two. Are, I think you picked two really bad examples because they're both, uh, as you said uh, earlier, um, beloved uh, adaptations of manga. So people wanted a second season. They just wanted a second season done on the same budget as the first season and at the same cadence. That's not how the industry the works season. at Indeed, all, though. But that's that's different from what you said. So it's okay. Fair enough. But there is but there is this idea of like that. Even more so, that's that's actually not true. Like the TV landscape in the U.S. is awful. But like the <laughs> idea of of where you have one season and you have no idea if there's going to be a second season. Mm-hmm. Um, rarely anime know. You can tell when like we'll see you next season. Will sometimes be the final title card, and then you know that they're going to get another season. But usually, it's something that get, gets announced a year later and may not even have all the same cast and crew or even the same studio working on it. And that kind of undermines the auteur part of the topic, but it does point out to like selling out does happen. And it's when it's when your work, it becomes more successful that you get a second season that you did not expect um, and perhaps cannot work on. Mm. Uh, it seems like at times. There's 
someone you met, just mentioned who I, th- I think we have to talk about, and that's um, Miyazaki and the rest of uh, Ghibli, because they're definitely an outlier. And I think part of that is because they've basically, through chance or deliberation, uh, made lack of compromise their selling point. They've they've turned what tr- traditionally they've turned the fact that we all know that the ubiquity of that um, corporate sponsor, that record deal, that cup of noodles in the side of the thing, they've made rejection of that <laughs> their selling points. They've they've basically they've they've it's it's the it's Bill Hicks his his routine about um like like marketers and going ah oh, yeah the the anti anti corporate dollar <laughs> love that smart smart thinking and Ghibli has definitely done it for probably purer reasons at least on some of their parts but i'm not sure all of their parts i'm sure there's people in the finance staff of ghibli who knows that showing what a cranky git miyazaki was makes their brand and they know that that selling that cranky no compromises person to an audience who come and want a perfectly polished product is 100 percent what you can do and so i think Modern Ghibli has been hamstrung because they base so much of their brand identity on Miyazaki and uh, Takahata's uncompromising natures. And so the moment you have a, a Ghibli film which doesn't have Takahata or Miyazaki's name attached to it, people's expectations drop, and sometimes rightly, um, quite a lot of times rightly, frankly, but um, I don't think any of us went in to those films expecting it to be of a level i think everyone went in think oh this is probably gonna be a little disappointing uh, at least at least i think that's how i felt like you, you it's oh it's not the master directing well it's not gonna be as good is it yeah i think this has made me realize that often one's assessment of selling out is based on how like deep in the industry knowledge or mm. poisoned by yeah reading too much industry stuff because like i mean it kind of reminds me like when people talk on video game podcasts of of like of like their brother who's like oh this game was made by ea they make the good games i like (laughs) and it's just like that's you're talking about thousands of people like there's no possibly no overlap between that and the last in the last ea game i do think that studio ghibli it will surprise people that i talk to who only know them from watching it in the movie theater or watching spirited away win the academy award um, it doesn't occur to them that there's multiple people making Studio Ghibli things uh, under the same umbrella, and you can see Studio Ghibli kind of, I think, especially in the late two thousand, in the early two thousands, when they were trying to broaden their production base, they tried to like kind of make this an umbrella brand, and they had stuff like Ocean Waves, which no one's watched um, because it's notoriously pretty bad. It's their attempt to move into TV after Miyazaki scoffed at it, but it's just. It turns out that even if people only know about Ghibli, they still can smell a Miyazaki or a Takahata when they when it's put in front of them. And I, I had a friend who came to me after Secret World of Arietti, and they're like, they're like, is Miyazaki like, has he like been making like worse movies lately? I'm like, oh no, that's not a Miyazaki movie. And they're like, oh, well, who's whose is it? It's Ghibli. And I'm like, that's not just Miyazaki's like house brand. It's not a it's not a name he works under. It's a whole studio. And they're like, oh, OK. Uh, and then they asked me about several other Ghibli movies that they thought were kind of underwhelming. Like, were those also not made by Miyazaki? And so it's kind of like almost stealth selling out to like <laughs> yeah. just 
just to have other people producing it. That's something like I don't think we can talk about this topic if without talking about Akiyuki Shinbo and uh, and Shaft. Mm. I think Shinbo's t- changed his name pronunciation back yet. He was going by Simbo for a while. Okay, um, but uh, I think that someone pointed out to him that it sounds like Simba from the Lion King and he probably made the good call that that was not the aura he was wanting to uh, he didn't like Shin uh, as as a sound in his name when Shin American said it so yes uh, or Shin's like legs who knows what he was thinking but anyway Akiki Shinbo and Shaft where we have him acting as chief director or supervising director for all of these works and like you can look at him on my anime list or uh, Annie DB or even in his Wikipedia article. And even from the mid 2000s, when he's working with Shin Onuma, and then when he's working with people to split off some of the uh, Natsuno Arashi and Bakemonogatari work, um, I think of these as, as Akiku Shinbo joints, but it becomes increasingly apparent, especially when we get into the early 2010s, let alone the late 2010s, that like he doesn't really direct stuff anymore. He's kind of just the chief who you run everything by, but there's someone else who granted this helps with the brain drain problem, uh, in anime, but they are the ones making the calls, but the brand of Akuki Shinbo teaching shaft, uh, producers to do the whole like head tilt and different, uh, formalistic stuff they do. It's kind of him as a brand. And then once you become a brand, then you necessarily sell that kind of, that's in itself a way of selling out Yeah, um, is for 100%. people to expect Ghibli movies to be Miyazaki movies or people to expect Shaft shows to be Akiku Shinbo shows. And to Miyazaki's credit, he really avoids getting credit when he's worked on his, especially his son, Goro's works and not wanting to like put it front and center as his work. It's his son's work. Um, but in, uh, in Shaft, uh, Shinbo seems perfectly happy to have his name front and center while these younger, extremely talented uh, directors and episode directors are what's doing a lot of what we would consider the work of mm. uh, of directing an anime series. The other the other thing which inspired this uh, topic for me was uh, was a work which has which is exactly the exact example of what you're talking about. It is um, credited to Shinbo. Um, it's the uh, Fate Extra slash uh-huh. Last Encore, which was a Shaft adaptation of a sequel to a alternate setting light novel of, of Fate light novel. <laughs> so Fate, for those who are fortunate enough not to know, is a <laughs> massive franchise of visual novels and gacha games, which center around a sort of mythical fight between reincarnations of old heroes uh, to capture a holy grail or similarly um, all-powerful object which grants wishes and the studio which has become famous for for doing the mainline adaptation adaptations are is ufotable uh, which is a very fight centric um studio it's very much known for its animation in terms of movement and kinetic values which is not really what shaft's known for and so when I, I saw, okay, we've got a fate and it's a shaft joint. That's not what I was expecting. And it's got Shinbo's name attached to it, but it's uh, directed by uh, Miyamato uh, Yukihiro, who has done a lot of um, the sort of things like Arakawa Under the Bridge, Maria Harlick, 
more recently like, some of the um uh, uh Madoka stuff and yeah also did the the later seasons of Star Wars Sensei or also Yukihiro Miyamoto yeah so. the the thing about Fate uh, uh, Fate Extra Last Encore God that's somehow a mouthful to say it's just because it's like Fate Extra it's Last Encore It's just a bunch of nonsense Fate. words just, yeah. Yeah. Fate Extra Last Encore The show is entirely aesthetic because you're you're literally thrown into this direct sequel of an alternate work with no introduction you're just you're just going to be plunged into this journey through the seven circles of purgatory of um souls and like it starts with a eternal circus being shot at someone by buddha and from there it gets more confusing if you care about the plot then you have to have seen the the, the works before or at least have some idea about fate like if you've seen the mainland works you have a vague idea if you haven't then you're probably just completely and utterly mystified yeah it's it's, it's a standalone work which requires previous re- reading and th- like that's crazy like it feels like it's they're just using it as an exercise to sort of practice the things they've they've done in monogatari and in madoka because there's there's one episode which is basically just madoka it's just like okay here's someone's mindscape yeah. it's all done with cutouts and stuff congratulations uh, it's this is the the good madoka taste you you love i'll i'll, I'll put it here <laughs> for you there's because there's no emotional core to it things like monogatari like the, the artistic styles always did play into the themes, like the way Monogatari sort of very male gaze, which you and Jeff have discussed to infinity and beyond, um, <laughs> was very much part of its its message about Araragi. Whereas all this, it's all chrome. It's it's it, there's nothing beneath it. Which this is probably the closest example I can find to a true sellout. Because actually, I, I was going to say there's no emotional connection, but Shinbo might be a huge fake junkie like he might have his his mobile might be loaded to the gills with gacha he, he might be chasing yeah, they that might, they're, they're out there yeah but <laughs> it's 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 a show which so much is chrome that it it feels like the the most cynical it's, it's just such a mystery to me how it got made like what they're, they're, they're not a studio which takes on many commissions so part of me you want to do is, is it kind of like doing a favor for someone in a production committee or something I mean that's the sort of thing that will that will make you lose your mind. <laughs> mind yeah. though, like why did why did Shaft do March comes in like a lion? And the answer is, I think that they were the right studio for it. I think that uh, Akiyuki Shinbo and Kenjiro Okada were were great, and they they deserve <laughs> that project. But you can, when a f- studio is known for a particular type of if not selling out than fan service, mm. then you kind of get surprised that Shaft is not doing a show about horny, depressed idiots, which is kind of their bread and butter these days, even with stuff like Nisekoi or Makaku City Actors, um, and especially with all the, the Monogatari series stuff. But how about on the other end of the spectrum, though? How about um, cheap, cheap, shitty shows <laughs> that are just there to... To earn a dollar. How about the CG Berserk TV shows? Okay. How do you feel about those as selling out? How do you feel about Standalone Complex 2045 as selling out? For me, Berserk TV show is painful to watch. On Honestly painful. Like, we, we did the films, and the films are flawed, but the, they're still interesting works, and they still bear a, a resemblance to the original manga. And, like, what the author thought of that, we'll never know. Um... 
like I can't imagine considering how meticulous he was and how much he cared about his work he was he would have been happy that a bad animation of Guts becomes like a meme on the internet I, I think that's the other thing like when we talk about the the author or the the guiding creative voice behind these things sometimes the question is is it the mangaka who is the person who occupies that position or is it the actually the the director and i think part of the thing which distinguished ghibli is because it it did um things where the director was the the key visionary ghost in the shell is interesting because it is the the key crew and they seem quite happy to take that money and make cg like although i don't think that's exactly surprising considering their fetishization of technology like, if anyone's going to embrace CG, um, it's the people who, who like the idea of uh, jacking your brain into a, a computer. Yes. Well, also, Kenji Kamiyama has said before that he prefers to work on adaptations. He prefers to take someone else's work and play the editor role for it. And so when he was adapting um, Masamune Shiro's manga stuff and also the work that Oishi had done on uh, on uh, the movies... Um, I think that he was in a better element. With this, it largely seems that he's letting the tail wag the dog with Shinji Aramaki and the CG division of uh, Production IG, which has co-credit for this uh, standalone complex 2045 shows, mm. that he's kind of letting uh, the, his, anima- his former animation director and mechanical designer plot out the shows, which is why we have this absurd threat that is post-humans, which are just these like perfect fight machine people we'll talk more about this after the break um but i do think that this is definitely an example of kenji kamiyama being hands-off and not having the same kind of crew to fall back on they've all moved on one of his best writers um went on to do writing for eccentric family and one of his best designers went on to do something else and blah 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 and now he's working with that Ilya what's-his-face doing the character design so they all have same face and shinji aramaki wanting at least two fights per episode if not three so i do think that there's that's that is a bit of a institutional decay also playing in with cashing in with netflix coming in with this suitcase of cash and being like make a sequel to one of the most well-regarded anime of all time yeah i it's a shame as always it's a shame john's not 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 here anymore because like when i think about what's the like my, the most modern example, I can think of something where a revered manga adapted into a, a CG show. Um, it's uh, Doro Hedoro, which we've we've talked about uh, briefly in in past episodes. But I remember John talking about that as almost unadaptable because the original manga is so grimy and like covered in dirt and mud. Like its its names literally means something like mud sludge is is what its name name means and and. It it was just an incredibly messy thing, and then it gets made into a CG, CG. and and CG by its its nature, as we've covered before, doesn't cover uh, that well, and so it, it was such a strange choice. It obviously only happened to make it happen, and and that's the compromise. To back to what I was originally saying, it's like you have to make a compromise in order to to have this thing done. Yeah, yeah. I I want to reference an extremely good retrospective of Berserk by Lady Emily, a YouTuber that works with Sarah Zed, but also does her own stuff. Uh, she did a, like a synopsis of the different all the different media incarnations of Berserk and what you should consider. And I think she does make a very good argument that Berserk, it has to be visually impressive. It has to be extremely dark. 
and it has to be these like long well-paced arcs and it this is one of those classic pick two of the three examples uh, <laughs> with anime like you can make something that's long running and beautiful but it can't be dark because then the a company won't stand behind it for multiple seasons of mm-hmm. of death and rape and murder and all other sorts of awful things and it can be dark and beautiful but it won't it won't run for a long time and it can be dark and it can run for a long time, but it sure as hell won't be beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's just an interesting sort of compromise there. I'll mm-hmm. link the video. It's worth your time to watch it, anybody's time who's listening to this. Um, but I do think of there are some things that are not adaptable, at least not in a substantive or meaningful or complete way, just because there is no financial angle for that. The only, and especially now that um, Berserk's future as a manga is in question, yeah. Like, who's going to pay for an adaptation that will probably be criticized as either looking bad or not living up to the manga um, or just won't be able to drive people to the manga because there won't be any new volumes being sold? Um, Mira's death is probably better than any anime series at at driving sales from an absolutely ghoulish capitalist perspective. Uh, So we have to... (laughs) See, just see it from that angle. And personally, me, I've always been satisfied with the 1996-1997 um, Berserk. It's it's incredibly cheap, um, almost to the point of ugliness. Um, but I think it is a good adaptation, and it's one that just would not be financially viable these days. I don't think it was even particularly viable in, in the late 90s mm-hmm. when it came out, uh, although it was a huge piece of the fandom when I was coming up. So The, the one other person I uh, wanted to bring up uh, regarding this is uh, Matako Shinkai, um, who, as we've discussed before, began his career with uh, Voices of a Distant Star, which was a, a cent- not quite a one-person in show, but as near as, and who went on to really make his name with Garden of Words, which was a, a unrepentedly uncommercial thing, like a, a study of mm-hmm. depression and... Uh, uh, sort of how you drag yourself out of that in a very uh, exquisitely beautiful rainy uh, Tokyo, and then from that he makes your name, which is this unex. I'm not sure how unexpected a blockbuster, but it was. I'm sure it was <laughs> like it's Shinkai's made his name as this animator who makes beautiful films, and then they they make your name, and it just. As we talked about on our, our breakout hits, it just goes completely gangbusters. It goes completely crazy, and I feel like, and uh, this is, I hope this doesn't prove true in in the long term. But I feel it kind of broke him. I feel like he's <laughs> ever since everything he's done si- since you can't. I'm not sure if it, it or it either broke him or it broke us because everything he's done since <laughs> I can't help but look at it and go, kind of things like your name but like everything feels like uh, weathering with you and his his new one all have similar feels of like star-crossed uh, individuals and and some sort of cataclysmic event which has to be reckoned with or um pre- uh, but not prevented like it's, it's 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 there's always like some sort of acceptance and it always feels like yeah he's he's retreading the same thing again like either he's He's stuck in a, a a thing where the only pitch anyone's accept, accepting is like, yeah, your name again, please. I mean, I would, I honestly, as a, a fan of Shinkai from 
from early in his career. Like, like Voice of Vista and Star, Place Promises are in early days, Five Centimeters Per Second, and Garden of Words are all about similar, um, just like the slow dissolution of relationships, and the relationships don't end in mutual recrimination or finality, like Loose Ends is the, is the name of the day. And I do think that that finds the best expression in Garden of Words, which are its most uncommercial aspect, in my opinion, is just that, like, it's two people licking each other's wounds and then they like go off and do their own life. It's mm. just a, it's just kind of a relationship built from a chance encounter. And that's something they've been working on for a while. It's something that will get wide acclaim with your name. But once you've hit it big, people start watching what your show, what your movies are about. And I always found it kind of like charming in a dorky way, how he just kept remaking um, this anime that was, uh, me and my girlfriend just went long distance. Are we going to be okay? Just over and over and over <laughs> again as his as his topic, and that worked well for me as someone who most of my major relationships, even at this point in my life, have at some point been long distance and have just been threatened by that transition. I do like that, but I do think that it is with Makoto Shinkai, um, with Mamoru Hosoda, you have these mm. directors who finally break out into big name into a into big name productions, um, often get a larger crew. Um, people doing the writing, um, people doing the producing uh, that they would that they would have done themselves when they were smaller, indie or at least just like niche uh, filmmakers, and kind of either becoming caricatures of themselves or kind of losing their voice. I don't think this has happened with Shinkai as much as it has with Mamoru Hosoda, where I was not impressed by Boy and the Beast or Bell, and I I liked Mirai no Mirai, but I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. It's a show entirely told from a five year old's perspective, which mm-hmm. is really interesting, but kind of boring and like not doesn't have as much to say just because like a five year old does not have much to say about the human <laughs> experience, generally speaking. But Weathering with You, I think, is a stumble that he can recover from, and we'll see with uh, Suzume locking up the doors. Uh, but it does definitely seem like another. <laughs> story about like weird star cross stuff and even the poster has a strange flooded city that she's standing yeah. in front of a door of and it is yeah i don't know it, it's it's not necessarily like it's so hard to again because anime is so corporatized it's hard to tell when a director is kind of just burned out or hitting a hitting a plateau of his career or just has decided to start collecting paychecks and making less art um, it's hard to tell those those things all apart, uh, and I don't know. I haven't written off either of those <laughs> filmmakers yet. I do think that being expected to be the next Miyazaki um, yeah. is a terrifying <laughs> prospect. And people online are just like, "Oh, they're so humble," and it's like, no, like, like terrified. We saw, yeah, yeah, we saw the kiss of death of being people being described as the next Spielberg, and then their next movie oh, was a yeah. flop, and then they disappear because like. Spielberg is a is not only a, a generational talent, but he's also can only exist in his own context. And I think mm. especially in the, the 2020s media landscape, it's very hard to be a Spielberg or, or a Miyazaki. Like, yeah. do you even know when the next Miyazaki movie is coming out? Like, I'm aware that it's <laughs> happening, but I'm not like watching it, watching for it to come out or anything. It's not the same. There's also the, the fact that's, I think, certainly in the West studios have become increasingly aware that once a director's name is in the up there in big letters next to the title etc you are taking a risk because mm. that director might suddenly become 
out of fashion and he might drag down your property with him and mm-hmm. like they there's been a trend with big commercial properties to bring in a series of smaller directors who don't really have any sort of name recognition but have done a few interesting things and hand them A-list material and, and just say, okay, here's your huge budget, go for it. And I feel like just because of, of its nature as a smaller industry and an even more collaborative one, that's, as we said, that's not a risk with anime. Like, I don't think even Shinkai is at a risk of actually no shinkai is shinkai has become a risk shinkai's become bigger than like there isn't a studio he he's associated with he's it's just him we think of and he can't ever disappear back into the background he's always going to be e forefront now same with hosada same with i I don't know would you say the same is true of um science saru and um yuasa or do you think he's he's capable of disappearing into the background with that? Yuasa is just kind of an art house figure, and I think he's his his rough style, his weird movies, um, his general cowboy attitude about the industry. I think has kept him from being commodified like other uh, like other directors are. I think he is very close to being an auteur. Um, it certainly all his films have a very distinct feel that if he has not made himself, he has coached his his staff to make that mm. way. I don't think of Yuasa as a sellout. I don't like a lot of his movies and TV shows as much as I wish I did. Um, but I do think he is someone who has just managed to carve out a niche for himself in the industry based on the uniqueness of his talent and the, the cult cachet of the movies he's made thus far. And we can point out stuff like um, keep her hands off Isaac as a sign that he's, that he's pushing more into the mainstream um, but even that's like even that anime was not like the one of the season. Yeah. There were plenty of others there. If it were to come out this season, who knows? Because we're <laughs> in a deep in a pandemic uh, that will never go away. But yeah, I don't know. I I cannot see Yuasa selling out. Um, mostly because I think the act of selling out whatever we've defined it as over the course of this conversation would it would be the end of his appeal someone's like stop having these like dirty these dirty itchy uh outlines for your art (laughs) um stop doing all this fake camera work uh that is just distracting and is is just serves to show like what incredible talent you've got at your studio um i think it would be it would be a waste to buy him out in that way so fingers crossed but, oh, but who knows? They've 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 commodified Akuki Shinbo's like mm. horny style of neck, neck yeah. tilts and panty flashes. So I don't know anything. I don't know why you're listening <laughs> to this podcast. Uh. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take a break and come back with Ghost Michelle Sack underscore twenty forty five second core. I think I don't know what they're calling this. I was calling this season shit, anyway. <laughs> I mean. Sack underscore implies that you're not supposed to say standalone complex. Like, how do you say an (laughs) underscore? There we go. That's our title.
we're back for the second half. We will be talking about the second half of Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex 2045, a Netflix production, the first half of which aired in spring 2020, the second half of which aired in spring 2022. Uh, there was a movie that aired in uh, fall 2021. I think we both have watched that. It has a couple yeah. of new scenes, most of them repeated as the first episode of uh, the new season. Um, but yeah, we talked about this some time ago, um, back when John was still on the podcast. And I think we had a bunch of mixed feelings because, uh, as I said, it does seem to be uh, Kenji Kamiyama holding off a lot of his more intellectual stuff. The writing's still there. A lot of the characterization's still there when it happens. But largely, this is a show about going from action scene to action scene, fighting against this absurd threat, the post-humans who are these people who got a, vi uh, a very sharp fever and woke up as completely different people who were just like devoted to destroying the global order by any means necessary. And they are superhumanly fast and smart and they can hack anything just by looking at it. And very much a impossible action movie uh, antagonist uh, as opposed to the Laughing Man or the Individual Eleven uh, from previous seasons. Mm. Uh, how did you feel? I don't, how did you remember feeling about the first half of the season, Duncan? And how have your opinions evolved watching the recap movie and watching? We both watched the first three episodes of the second half um, through spoilers: the death of a, a character, the apparent, yeah, the apparent death of a character. <laughs> I, I think the thing which stood out to me is like. The big question with 2045 is how much is it aware of its own absurdity? And that is still an un un unanswered question because you may think uh, naming your uh, super rich billionaire Patrick Huge is s a uh, obviously absurd choice to do. But we're living in the world still one of, of my It's still one of my favorite, uh, still one of my favorite episode titles of Patrick Huge in Japan. I'm very proud. <laughs> But even even considering that, <laughs> yeah, even considering that in and living in a world where um, you have Gundam villains called Full Frontal, we are, it's it's a very strange show that you have this very serious group of mercenaries and uh, government agents. And yes, within that, you have some of the most scenery chewing CGI you can ever get like they like they love just to sort of prance in and sort of arms wide like hello look at me and it's i don't know if they're aware of the absurdity and they're just going with it or if it's just like it's in this weird doll like um style of cgi yes they're, they're yes. very very much action figures like it's uh you expect articulation poses and uh uh interchangeable heads like it's it's like like nendroids or something like it's they if they haven't got that time they should do it and they probably do um but although as you said before given that this is netflix money they probably just don't need to for once um but the first season was sort of had some mysteries and like how much those mysteries were going to go anywhere was another thing but as so again, as you said there, like it had none of the subtlety to um, 
any of the previous uh, Ghost in the Shells, like even the original film where we're dealing with um, a, a super AI um, going and hacking people and a lot of the questions are not about, okay, this is an overwhelmingly powerful opponent. This is an uh, opponent who has overwhelming control of information. And that is still present to a degree in 2045. But I think the tendency to just default to an uh, action sequence of a um, backflipping super uh, soldier kind of spoils it and stops it from being... I don't, it keeps the, as I say, it's it's like I, I struggle to take it seriously and I, I, I still don't know if it wants me to take it seriously. Yeah, I don't, I have a ton of respect. I'm going to start out <laughs> always. I have a ton of respect for Shinji Aramaki. I think he's one of the most brilliant animation directors and mechanical designers working. He comes up with these, these practical machines or practical looking interfaces that are still at the same time alien looking um, and threatening because you don't know what they'll do, but not in a bullshit way. But when you have these principles applied to the antagonists, the posthumans, um, who can do anything, and that's kind of why we can't have this mystery. When he applies these principles, the mystery isn't who's hacking us, which is oftentimes like the question in in uh in ghost in the shell stand complex like who's hacking us what do they want we just don't know the post-human agenda and now that we've met um what's his name one eight a four or whatever yeah the seeding it with in the first season with 1984 novels dropped around yeah. as and it turns out oh that's that's the name of the ai the which was developed by the nsa to uh and they gave it a mission which was to to make the world, everyone in the world happy, but make the U.S. especially happy. Yeah, and and it. I like. I mean, I like that. But and 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 the, the plot is that that it's because those are two conflicting demands. It 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 basically broke out. It decided, okay, well, the only way I can can do this, accomplish these two demands, is to ignore the fact I'm being given counter demands and go out yeah. in, into the world and and make 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 my original mission happen it's it's the whole um uh it it's, it's the classic ai idea of like you give it a simple thing and it will not necessarily fall that how you think it will and that's the kind that's the frustrating thing about standalone complex 2045 and we'll be ranging through um spoilers for the first half of the movie the early episodes so if you're concerned go watch it right now um if you're worried about it being boring, I don't know, like throw a party while you're watching it. <laughs> but in the meantime, I do like there is so much of this show that is recombined elements of previous seasons or revived themes that are put towards new directions. But just the posthumans as a threat, as these as these perfect, virtually unstoppable beings, unless you were physically there um, with overwhelming force to physically stop them, then you then they are just these unaccountable super beings. And so there are elements that I can see that, that it really likes. It really likes the, the puppet master from, um, from the original movie. That's that's some of that there too. The individual Levin with these, like this group of people who've been uploaded with this, with this virus that turns them into stochastic terrorists, achieving this like reactionary end. Even the idea of America um, irresponsibly using technology to regain a position of global dominance. Um, these are all really interesting ideas. 
And unfortunately, they're only really advanced, not in the action scenes, not even in the suspense scenes, but in the, the debriefing scenes and the scenes of Aramaki talking to someone in his office um, or talking to the prime minister in his office. That's where we get we see Kenji Kamiyama's writing, um, his excellent character work, which is largely absent, except when reestablishing these new characters. Um, I don't know if Standard slash Clown is ever going to come back. Uh, I don't know if Purin is dead or not. Standard was one of the the worst things of the the first season because, like, when you make a single member of your your cast a person of color, and you make him <laughs> and you make him the clown, like that doesn't reflect well on you. I mean, I think the worst. I think the worst thing is that, technically speaking. All of the Ghost in the Shell characters are people of color are, are, of the main Section Eleven. They're all they're all uh, Section Nine. They're all uh, I almost called in Individual Nine Section Eleven. Mm-hmm. I'm getting too many numbers and all mm-hmm. of the names. All of the original members of Section Nine are people of East Asian descent. The problem is to make the black character the fool, the minstrel, the clown, the monkey, even, and it's unfortunate. And rewatching the movie. Uh, that cuts down the first season, like he, he barely exists. It makes you realize how, yeah, he barely exists. He comes, he comes in, talks a big game, gets embarrassed, gets given an important job for the next mission, gets embarrassed again, and then has his brain hacked and it's just like sent off like a like a dog you can't take care of anymore, and you're just like releasing them into the woods. Be happy, standard. Find a team that won't make fun of you, and so that's a bummer. I do wonder if he comes back. I do wonder if they're going to kill Purin. Um, yeah. I mean, she got shot with a lot of bullets, but and this was something that my girlfriend was asking me because she's watched the first season of Standalone Complex, which I'm glad that I watched before coming back to this. It really lets me hone my my specific criticisms. But she's like her brain case isn't damaged like she should like they can just put her in a new body. Right. And I'm like. In this show, it's never really clear how many bullets can kill somebody mm-hmm. um, because there are some situations where a guy is like chasing them in the car and they just put like 10 shots in his chest and he keeps coming and they're like, oh, he's a cyborg. But then other times like someone like Bato gets shot in the leg and he's like decommissioned for the rest of the fight. And so you have to wonder, like, I don't know, that's I guess that's again like having this sort of action first directing. It makes you makes you struggle with the stakes just like it makes you struggle to know how capable the post humans are are they like patrick huge you can just dance around bullets infinitely until until a like he's physically restrained and then a sniper shoots his legs out from under him yeah. like how does this how do these things work i'm not i'm, um, not, sh- I'm not sure if i like or if i hate the the cg of the uh the post human movement like i think the the way that they they use it in a lot of fights is kind of lazy like it's just oh they can dodge yeah. every bullet um and that that feels really 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 lazy it's like well okay you've got an unstoppable antagonist yeah bully for you and then occasionally they'll do things like the um chase through the crowd um in i think it's the second episode where while the majors sort of happen to like push push her way through the crowd, like the the typical way, like in in a a lot of movies, the way you'll you'll show someone who has like command over um, other people is like yeah. the crowd parting for them and them just sort of gliding through. But instead, they have her sort of spinning and like it's the way that that individual cho- 
is it's easier for her to just cloak her presence and then just sort of orientate her body in ways which would be confusing for a normal person and just sort of like walking backwards because that happens to be what for a couple of steps and then sideways and just switching orientation at a, a dizzying for a normal human a very dizzying thing just to glide through this crowd instead of like them like parting like the red sea she was kind of nice and not as lazy like because like that's such a lazy shot oh like here's the villain here's them merging with the crowd and just, yeah oh that would be talking about yeah that yeah no i agree i i think what it is is the idea of i think that there is too much going on with the post humans i think the idea that they are these just like suicide bombers for like human culture and society like they just exist to destroy it like they if they come in contact with something important they will destroy it and they will cause chaos that's one element and then there's also the element of them as super processors um that they could they just have a simulation of the entire of all data involving the entire crowd in their head and therefore they have an optimal movement that like that crowd that will cause them to move as fast as as possible while disturbing no one and that's interesting but when you take the super processing so far to where they can just calculate the trajectory of every single bullet, and there's a whole line in, in the first season of just like, they're dodging the bullets before you've even fired them. And that's stupid. That's, that is stupid. Um, because you don't know, like, you can't calculate something that hasn't happened. You can calculate probability, but there should be some imperfection there to make it seem real. But like the idea that that you can calculate to the point that you are just predicting the future, that you know where the bullet's going to fly, and so you're just simply not there, I think is a step too far. And it's why Patrick Huge backflipping across his <laughs> apartment feels silly, and I or his, his penthouse, I, it feels silly. And I hope they know, like him dropping his robe and then just just doing endless backflips, <laughs> like God, I hope someone on that production staff knew that this was ridiculous. And I think. I hope someone in there also spoke a little English and knows that Patrick Huge sounds like a porn star name and <laughs> therefore does not sound like a, an insurrectionist billionaire. Elon Musk deciding to give away electric cars and flamethrowers to, to terrorists uh, to hurt people he doesn't like. But uh, but yeah, just I'm open to where the posthumans are going to go. Um, I'm open to where this plot is going in general. I know that a lot of my favorite parts of it are running on fumes, like the incredible chemistry between... Bato and the major and especially Bato's voice actor and the major's voice actor like they get no scenes together but they still they like the team still seems to work except for poor Paz who doesn't get to gets his ass kicked in a fight and that, that whole fight mm -hmm. I was like let Paz they're all professionals director like ev let everyone have a good fight don't let only keep the good fights for the major but um all the elements are still there the ensemble's still there this isn't a rise where everyone is just been transformed into an asshole who hates everybody else in, in the business. People still enormously respect Aramaki. I loved that he thought the prime minister was going to get assassinated and he took out this tiny little, uh, this tiny little 32 special pistol. It's not going to stop a post-human, but it, it lets you understand um, Aramaki as someone who feels responsible for what's happening around him. And he usually, the tools he usually uses are his team, but he has a gun and he will use it and he will probably die, but it, it shows it keeps him from feeling like a cynical political actor like yeah. so many characters in Ghost in the Shell are. Um, that but then a that's a, that's alongside Purin being like, yay, I shot him. And then just getting absolutely aced by, <laughs> yeah. by seven so, different security guards. Just like, 
oh. I can't think they didn't know that that, that 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 was absurd. Like, like there's no way you, you do. Okay, this is where the the cute bubblegum haired girl goes. Yay, I did it! And then we we cut to her getting peppered with bullets. This is this is a serious moment, and you should be sad. It's no, 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 no one, th- no one's thinking that. It's clearly absurd, and like him then going over and going like no and it's starting raining it's like okay this this is this is <laughs> we're getting into mario kart territory here it's is it's like at least she's not going to tie it i but we're, we're, we're damn close i can just imagine going over and being like which one of my underlings were you i don't know you only worked for me for three months yeah like she's both set up as like this person we're introduced to as a prodigy but not a post-human initially and then it's like okay actually she is a post-human um well we had a, we, a weird teaser he's like uh, when she's talking with the ai that created the post-humans and he's like i'm gonna download myself into your head now like i'm gonna make you a post-human and then he's like oh my bad no you've already got someone in there so i'm done and so it again that's a good mystery setup unfortunately it's driven by the post-human mystery which is just like magic it's not that ghost in the shell ever has resorted to what's effectively science magic but it still is like a mystery predicated on something that we can't possibly guess because we don't know the rules that are being set up um for who per and even is yeah also the most disconcerting mystery at this point is uh is togusa because at the end of the first season like he he's out in the country reliving the like traumatic childhood of this one of the post-humans and like tracking him down by sort of being like having been partially hacked by by that individual like having some of his his memories being like a partial copy of his brain in there yeah and that again speaking of things that it borrowed from previous seasons i liked it reminded me of um when the laughing man spent like days with the ceo of serrano genomics and was just like brain diving him and hacking his perceptions the whole time and that was like something like the i think that the ceo says like it reminded me of my college days um just hacking each other's brains and arguing about philosophy and like again we have a shadow of that in in togusa like kind of just like accepting this this return to the countryside um this sort of furusato thing and then discovering the actual backstory to a character and the emotional reasons why they do something versus being activated as a sleeper agent for an AI whose objectives it even thinks are contradictory. I don't know. It's, but yes, I do like the Togusa plot and I do want to see more and I want to hear more how about how you feel yeah. about it. And I, I, I'm pretty much with you there that it was, a, it was felt one of the more grounded bits that it was less technobabble, more personal. And the fact that we cut to it so enigmatically this season, like after him literally walking into like he's there one minute, he disappears the next, and we're uh-huh. like, okay, what's has has Bato been ha- hacked here and can't see him? And the, which is uh, which I think yes is evidently what happened because the the best characters the the touch comments are there, bye bye, literally just like. Take care, Tokusa. Goodbye. Goodbye. And there are, and they're so weird. Like the way that the Tachikoma have this, this like inscrutable derivative meme culture that they that they have. Like it's plausible. I buy that. Like bots, like, are you guys joking with me? As they're like, bye, bye, Tokusa. Goodbye. And they're just, he's waving goodbye, Bato, Bato-san. Uh, 
I love the Tachikoma. Yeah, I mean, it made me like Purin more that she's like friends with them and like the only one who like he she they, she tames them with a with a video game that doesn't have cop that has this copy protection they can't hack. Yeah, and so they can't they can't share it all across their network. So they just the cartridge is really important. Uh, yeah, and it's got the part. It's got pieces, and ultimately, like if I can say my my like my final take <laughs> is that yes, there are way too many action scenes. Yes, the post-human threat is laughably overpowered and clearly exists only to start more action scenes. Yes, the new characters don't really fit into the ensemble. Yes, the old characters have very little character writing, and they rely mostly on you having seen earlier seasons to make them feel like more than exposition scenes. Yes, the retcon of the relationship between Japan and the United States slash the American Empire um, feels like a really clumsy way to retrofit this into more contemporary geopolitical situation. I like the idea that in standalone complex, the U.S. got itself nuked to shit and is now three different countries, and none of them are particularly geopolitically influential. But that's not the story they want to write. But even as a cheap imitation of standalone complex, I'm still enjoying my time. I still like the Togusa mystery. I still like the Tachikoma I still like the major and Bato's chemistry. I even like individual episodes, like the when they go out to the countryside and the whole thing is about this paratrooper that lives up in the hills. And it feels very much like a rumor that you and your friends have mm. about like if you go into the forest and you go all the way deep, there's a shack and there's a guy in there. He's really scary. Don't talk to him. Um, and then and then the reveals from from that episode. There are good episodes. And that makes me feel that it's not just entirely the tail wagging the dog in terms of of Kenji Kamiyama versus Shinji Aramaki. And I want to reassert again that that's, that's just fan theory. Um, mm-hmm. Kenji Kamiyama may be perfectly happy to just make a super action-filled mm-hmm. Ghost in the Shell. I can't say for sure. Um, but there are themes. Like, the movie made it clear that the theme of, like, recycling elements of society versus nostalgia being a poison is a big thing. And the idea that America wants to make an AI to make them... <laughs> Make America great again. <laughs> Basically, I mean, even even more, even less like mimetically and more pointedly, they they want to make a virus to to turn the clock back to 1950, and like mm. now in 2022, we can say that that's never going to happen, and in 2045, it's even more ridiculous. And they cause a they cause a global financial collapse and permanent unending warfare, which are things that. The show keeps trying to make seem real and just seem ridiculous, but I'm sure that's the sort of thing that seems ridiculous until it happens to us in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think a global financial collapse is that out of the ordinary. Yeah. I hope an AI doesn't do it to make America in charge again, but who knows? One of the more recent episodes having like pal- uh, palladium po- poisoning as a, mm-hmm. a plot device is it and like the the idea of the sustainable war like this this low low bushfire of a war just constantly going away in the background of all these major uh major countries just basically saying like oh well if you can't get rid of the military industrial complex well maybe you can just set it to low and just uh have it bubbling away I love that AI being being like it's a known fact that war is the most efficient form of economic activity, and I'm just like, oof. That's the Kenji Kamiyama I like. It makes me want to rewatch uh, Moribito or Eden of the East. I want to like. I mean, I know Ghost in the Shell, Standalone Complex, backwards and forwards, but it's other stuff that I've never quite connected with. I wonder how much post millennial cynical capitalist, mm. yeah, 
Like he does political corruption better than anyone else. And in in Ghost in the Shell, even when it's ridiculously caricatured with their with their American born uh, American born prime minister and Agent Smith from the NSA oh, fucking yeah. with them, even with all that goofy stuff, the politics still feel very still feel very realistic. The one boxer post human who's like punching the heads off of corrupt people in the immigration industry, and that's just a little bit hyper real, but still very, very believable that he's you know he's enraged about how this country's principles are being being betrayed, and it allows for a moment of idealism, which again, whenever this appears in cyberpunk, whenever there's idealism in cyberpunk, I'm always happy because it's not just like the point of cyberpunk is not that the corporations have won, it's that the corporations are winning. So you can't like just fully buy into the idea that like, oh, we're fucked. There's nothing we do to change the system. And I like that we have an idealistic, respectable prime minister um, who can be trusted to be a force of good. And he tells the post-human, he's like, no, I love this country and I will do everything in my power to save it. And we don't know how he'll react, how he reacts because he's interrupted. But I like that just like, I liked Aramaki pulling a pistol when he thinks he's about to watch his prime minister get gunned down next to him. I liked the prime minister stepping up and being like, no, I'm a net good for the country. You shouldn't assassinate me. And giving the antagonist pause, these ridiculous caricatured antagonists. I'm sort of worried that they'll go for some ridiculous plot turn, like him being a post-human in the end. Like it it doesn't, doesn't feel like it's, out of the realms of possibility because as, as you say it's been has these moments where it just does the most ridiculous thing you can imagine and so in some ways that that is leads to tension but i don't feel like it's a good tension it's not like oh wow anything could happen this is tense it's like anything could happen this is a clown fiesta yes 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 no i it reminds me of later seasons of battlestar galactica where in the beginning they got a lot of mileage out of like anyone could be a cylon and then once you have most of the cylons revealed anyone could be a cylon feels like a rider escape hatch and i think people instantly like don't buy into it as much and I'm not there yet here. I, I, this is, this is not on the level of the previous two seasons. I don't know if I'm quite at AV club, giving it a C minus um, and saying that it's fatuous and has nothing to say. Um, I think it has plenty to say that it's, that's being drowned out by the sound of gunfire, so mm. to speak. But I'm, I mean, I'm excited to watch more. And honestly, you know what? Sue me. The fights are good. Most of the fights are good. <laughs> Although some of the some of the, some of the fights are good, like stop it, Duncan. I I did men- mention like the the image which has seared itself into my mind from from these three first episodes is is a post human missile launcher in one hand, a <laughs> uh, big mounted machine gun in the other, standing in a convertible which she's controlling with her mind, driving down a freeway. Against traffic. Moving, against traffic, which she's moving out of, of the way with her mind while oh, attacking a, uh, a van full of uh, special operatives who are driving backwards through the, the traffic. Like, that's a really silly, you see. Like, and especially as, like, it gets, oh, no, I've, we first get this threat revealed at, at, like, the end of an episode, and it's just... It's a cliffhanger, yeah. <laughs> and the cliffhanger is, here's a, here's a, 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 what looks like a slightly risquely dressed office lady with a... Uh, with a rocket launcher and a machine gun. Yeah. yeah. Quentin's, <laughs> like, Quentin Tarantino fucking loves this show, I bet. Like, that's, that's, that's like his, his fantasies from Pulp Fiction made real. So I, I sort of do, do appreciate, like, the fact that uh, 
the fact that like often what will happen in in these these things is like if they sh- show someone who's relatively normally dressed having a fight they'll they'll always t- tear their um their, yeah. their dresses and they actually gave her like uh slits on the side of her thing so she so handily enough she can be perfectly uh, uh a perfect uh like chunli esque uh, a martial arts fighter all throughout until she decides to throw an airplane at someone. Yeah, that, I mean, that actually made me jump. Like, hacking an airplane flying overhead and trying to crash it into the people attacking you is wild. And, like, it almost didn't communicate to me. I didn't realize, like, when the major's like, I was like, oh, she's, like, counter-hacking the plane to make it not crash. I thought it was, I mean... The main problem with that is just the where do you go from from someone pulling yeah. an airplane out of the sky? That's that's like that's God Jedi mind tricks. Tier shit. Yes, yeah. But um, nevertheless, but I do notice the the slit skirt thing. I noticed that the major's like dress uniform uh, now has a slit all the way up the sides mm. so that she can do high kicks with it. Um, on the one hand, I'm glad that they realized they had this problem. But... Is that good design or is that bad design? I'm not entirely sure. It's bad. Well, to... yeah. Per- I think the whole point of dress uniforms is you shouldn't have, you shouldn't be able to do high kicks in them. But obviously, the makers of Ghost in the Shell standalone complex twenty four eighty five disagree. Yeah. Is that a good place to stop? <laughs> the place to stop is with the is with the ending. The ED is done by uh, Ilya Kushinov, who is the illustrator who's been doing a lot of the uh, character design for the twenty forty five stuff. And as, as we've remarked before, he, he is his stuff is very doll like. Like he he does these very soft core, almost Eroge style illustrations. And when I f- first saw the ED, I thought basically this seems like the cast done for a dating sim. Like it, honestly, I could I could see like um, dream. This was Dream Cyber Daddy basically. Uh, like Bato <laughs> and uh, Togusa in sharp suits with their the necktie down a little bit, and uh, uh, like the 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 major and uh, um, Purin just looking more doll like than ever. Like he he fully leans into that the big big eyes uh, porcelain yeah. in in sort of cheeks eats look. And yeah, it's... the 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 neoteny of uh, of anime character design, like looking, making them look younger and younger every time they remake Ghost in the Shell. It seems like yeah, and look, I I can't but help think Prune looks like she does because of him. Um, yeah, and the fact that the, the the one of the major antagonists is is a is a lady who's half office lady, half fetish gear is probably him as well. <laughs> and yeah, he is character design. So of course it, it's because of him, but you sort of think the other stakeholders would sort of veto it to a degree instead of sort of letting him run right. But apparently not. I mean, I mean, he has a lot of cachet. I know that he has a, a problem with same face, but it's a face people like. Um, and I also wonder, again, not to go too much into conspiracy theories of production, but I think the animation studio probably appreciates a fairly standardized face and body <laughs> look. Like, um, Bato, while still, like, big and bulky, um, has been slightly handsomed up. He's a little bit trimmer. Ishikawa has completely lost his pot belly. There's, like, two types of guys. There's, like, skinnier guy and bulkier guy. And then there's, like, three types of women. And, yeah, it's... I don't want to blast the design because I think that there are problems that start before and go after the design itself. This is very plasticky. Speaking of that AV Club review, they they blast the back. They're like, every background is boring. Every background is boring grays and blacks. 
and I wanted to be like, you haven't watched Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex, have you, recently? Because, yeah, backgrounds are not. I mean, the scope of what they're depicting in the first two seasons is what's impressive, not necessarily the art of any one scene. Mm -hmm. But when they do have this incredible technical power that they're putting towards it, when they're doing all this animation, it does seem funny that everything does look so plasticky and fake in some ways. But I like I like the ED just fine. I like the OP more. I think it's hilarious. I yeah. love the Winamp slash digital blasphemy stylings of of floating metal spheres over a landscape. But yeah, it's definitely still the same bomb bombastic uh, music uh, uh, from the first season. It's still still very much fits that that image they they love of the major jumping off a build, building. To yeah. Yeah. Although I do, and and it's not a, and it's not a Yoko Kano soundtrack either. It's it's uh it's two guys who are doing who are uh, who've done anime soundtracks before, but nothing in particular. There was a, a this is maybe a closing thing, like a weird thought that 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 <laughs> shot of the major jumping back and going down, like I think um like to talk about Western media and its relationship with uh, anime, I think Spider Verse like very consciously aped that uh, initially with some of the sh shots of uh, Miles Morales when he he jumps back and and is like falling down, um, and Spider Verse is definitely something which um, took the anime aesthetic as uh, key to it, and I sort of think there's a, a sort of that. Where Ghost in the Shell uh, 2045 chooses to draw its line in realism isn't that far off from where um, Spider-Verse does. They're both... It's probably more doll-like, but it's it's still in that similar um, 3D, but um, consciously putting in lines um, to uh, sort of reference manga and uh, um, uh, comics. And I think, like, it's... I would not at all be surprised if um, this was something that... Spider-Verse was something they were aware of when they decided the style of CG they wanted to use here. And and equally, that Spider-Verse was probably aware of uh, the original Ghost in the Shell uh, when it, it did that image of um, Miles jumping back off a, a, a building. And yeah, it's interesting to see Western and Eastern animation arts uh sort of mixing yeah and there's no like uh there's no industry or staff overlap yeah uh, as far as i can tell from just skimming over it's just like it's interesting to watch these conversations and it's interesting like how like even just the idea of the tripod landing was invented <laughs> by ghost in the shell and it was invented by ghost in the shell to explain how uh how cyborgs which weigh like 800 pounds because they're so much metal how they could land but then it just became how people landed thanks to the matrix and then marvel and to watch these this pollination go back and forth, um, I never I, I never occurred to me that way. I do th about the, um, this sort of conversation between Marvel animation and a clumsy attempt to revive Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, but but it does work. And mm. I do think Spider Man and the Spider Verse is a much more dynamic, oh, yeah. um, enjoyable, and high quality work. But it is I mean they're both reaching for like kind of almost spin off status. And an attempt to like revive a finished story or something mm. like that. Yeah, and I think I think the the thing is is to remember that the creators working on these things are people who are passionate about their medium. Like then they're, they're not unaware of mm -hmm. other people making works. And I think that's that's the 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 flip of of our thing is that because it's such a collaborative industry, people aren't just 
in taking inspiration off people who they work with it's not a closed culture you don't only gain inspiration from the person whose desk is next to you you watch other people's stuff you who become aware of what's you steal from the best of it and sometimes that just becomes a, another industry standard like you say with the tripod landing like it it starts out as just someone's ste- like the Woskowski's just going who are uh, openly like fan girl yes. for <laughs> anime taking it and incorporating it because they want to do that um, and then Marvel doing it because the Matrix did it and then it just being like the, the standard and yeah it's it's I'm sure there'll be that we've things will work its way backwards. Like there'll be, I think a lot of the trials and tribulations of the 3d animation industry in the West is finding the point where the difference between a animated movie and just a movie is as good CG begins to get close to realism. You can say the Marvel films are animated films I think it's a really good case that you can say pretty much any mainstream Marvel um, film is more animated than acted. You then start saying is, okay, if something wants to self-define as animation, where does it draw those lines? And that's an interesting choice. And I think what the the problem with a lot of Netflix animations typically is that it draws that line at what's the cheapest way we can do this? Like what's the yeah. most... What's the most cut price way? And Ghost in the Shell 2045 is not that. Like, it may be stupid, it may be completely absurd at times, but it is still not janky. No, it's I not janky, janky, it's not cheap. It's, it's got beautiful, beautifully smooth animation in almost all circumstances, except when they choose not to by having the post-humans dance around like, like poser dolls, <laughs> but yeah. Cool. Yeah, let's go and wrap it up there. Um, I'm excited to watch the rest. Uh, Those of you listening, (laughs) you can immediately acquire more knowledge than us by watching the rest of the show on Netflix. Uh, This will probably come up again when Duncan and I finish it. Maybe we can drag Jeff along if Jeff's not too busy. Wait, what what garbage garbage pail has Jeff dived into next? I know I, I could just I could just like list anything that that I have had on my backlist forever. He, he's he's watching Zammed Lost Memories. He's watching uh, no. I'm just no. I'm just kidding. I know uh, I shouldn't be mean to Zammed. I should watch Zammed actually. Uh, I'm busy though. Okay, tune in next week where Jeff and Duncan will be talking about the first Ghost in the Shell movie, a throwback all the way to 1995 and when we still respected Masamune Shiro. Hmm. Rate, review, and subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. Find us on Facebook. Search for Keyframes Podcast. Find us on Twitter at Keyframes Pod. Uh, email us questions. Email us topics. Email us shows you want us to talk about. Keyframespodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> I may not watch it. Duncan may not watch it. Jeff may watch it. You'll get his um, incredibly thinky takes on everything uh, at any time. Oh, wow, they're remaking Bastard, too. Yeah. Cool. It's It's like... The fact that anything we are in the we are in we're in an anime yeah we're in a nostalgia zone. Speaking of speaking of as a poison, we're in an anime bubble, Ben. It's all it's all um, downhill. This is this is the second this is a second gilded age. 
we we know it. We, we we look around us and we know it's a gilded age. How do we I just... how do I live through two financial collapses and two anime <laughs> bubbles? This feels like bullshit. Honestly, people of previous generations didn't need to deal with this. Look, we just uh. gotta enjoy, we just got to enjoy it while we can before before the simultaneous global default. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Well, tell a friend before all anime disappears tell, forever. Tell a friend. And we become the... rich on our Blu-rays. <laughs> yeah. Tell your friend to put their, their to invest in Blu-rays and stash them away because they'll be worth worth their, their weight in gold. <laughs> oh jeez. Say goodbye, Duncan. <laughs> goodbye, everyone. And goodbye. Love you all. Bye. <laughs>